Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we will be completing our look at Herman Melville's The Piazza Tales. Uh, these were published in 1856. And we already talked about the opening work, which he wrote originally for The Piazza Tales, this kind of a connective tissue between the stories. That's, that story is called The Piazza. And then uh, we looked at Barnaby the Scrivener and Benito Sereno. And so this leaves us the three final tales in the Piazza Tales. Um, the first, the Lightning Rod Man, then the Encantatas, and finally the, um, the, the Bell Tower. So two of these are quite short. The Lightning Rod Man and the Bell Tower both are, are very brief, brief stories. The Encantatas is, is the major story that we have here. And it's really more of a kind of a quasi-historical, quasi-fictionalized account of the Galapagos Islands or the Encantadas, the Enchanted Isles. So anyways, this will probably be a little bit of a shorter episode than usual, but let's just jump in. Um, now, The Lightning Rod Man is a pretty fascinating little story. Um, it's kind of a criticism of maybe consumerism. There's uh, like in both this and the, the, the Bell Tower, there's kind of a thematic of technology here. So um, we talked a little bit about technology in Moby Dick and maybe a few other works of Melville's. We, we came across the issue of technology, but Melville does seem to have some bugaboo in his head about some bee in his bonnet about, about technology, right? There's that scene where Ahab destroys the compass, right? Rejecting technology's ability to direct him to his, his goal. Um, and essentially what you have in the Lightning Rod Man is, is just a man uh, who's in a house during a lightning storm. And then he's visited by this lightning rod salesman who begins to give this very odd and elaborate conversation about the dangers of lightning. And of course, he's a salesman. He's trying to promote the purchase of this this lightning rod and meanwhile there's this lightning going on and every time the lightning goes off he says hark and then gives some kind of commentary on the current state of of our characters even going to so far as to say what's the most safe place to stand in this building and of course he's trying to promote the sale of, of a lightning rod to protect his his home or protect the the narrator's home the first few pages of it is just that. It's just like a, a, an elaborate sales pitch for the sale of a lightning rod. And I think it's it's like a 20-foot rod. He's, or that's what he's trying to sell, 20 foot. It's a dollar a foot, so it's $20. Then he's trying to make this sale. That's not a small amount of money in, in Melville's time, obviously. And it's a, it's a very... Uh, very much a, a kind of a banter between the, the buyer, the potential buyer and the seller, and typical uh, salesman stuff. And there is some classical allusions throughout this, and this is something that we saw in the Piazza and to some degree in, in I think Barnaby the Scrivener had a bit of this. But here it's more explicit where we have the, the discussion of, of heaven, of, of Jupiter. In fact, the character's name here is Jupiter Tonins. That's the right lightning rod salesman. And there's a lot of talk here about Olympus. So he's kind of taking on the identity of Jupiter, of God, the God of lightning, while he's trying to sell this lightning rod. So there's a lot of this classical illusions running throughout the entire story. 
Now, everything is kind of normal until the very the climax of the tale in which the would-be buyer kind of turns the tables on the on the seller saying this you pretend envoy extraordinary and minister plenipotentiary to and from jupiter totens you mere man who has come here to put you in your pipe stern between clay and sky you who think that because you can strike a bit of green light from a Leyden jar that you can thoroughly avert the supernatural bolt your rod rusts or breaks and where are you who has empowered you you tetzel to peddle round your indulgences from divine ordinance. The hills of our head are numbered in the days of our lives, in thunder as in sunshine. I stand at ease in the hands of my God. False negotiator away. See, the scroll of the storm is rolled back. The house is unharmed. And in the blue heavens I read in the rainbow that the deity will not of purpose make war on man's earth. And that's the speech we get by the narrator at the end kind of turning back the lightning rod for selling something that's supposed to avert fate. And here he is embracing fate, embracing the, the judgment of God. And the, the terminology here, but even referring him to Tetzel. Tetzel, of course, the seller of indulgences in, at the time of Luther when he wrote his 95 Theses. You know, someone trying to sell the way out of, of hell. And he seems to be criticizing the, the seller here of trying to promote, trying to push uh, fear, trying to sell this commodity, a lightning rod, through fear. That's why he comes during a storm, right? He doesn't come on a sunny day to do it and sell it like a normal salesman would. Now, after this speech, the, the salesman tries to hit him with his staff, which is kind of like his sample piece of what the lightning rod will look like. And the narrator grabs the staff, beats him back with it. But uh, the final thought of this, of the story is that the lightning rod man still dwells in the land still travels in storm time and still drives the brave trade with the fears of man so he's still out there and you know i think the lightning rod can just simply be a metaphor for for uh capitalism and the the growing consumer society that melville shrouded him that, that melville was in at, at the time that he wrote this I mean, when you look at it, the, the traveling salesman is exploiting the fact that it's stormy and, and frightening. And, it, and it's something that the, 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 the salesman throughout the story is, is really exploiting, saying like, hark, you know, hear the, hear the lightning, hear the thunder. I guess you hear the thunder, you see the lightning, but, but warning him that divine retribution is coming. And, um, but he gets turned away at the end, but he's still out there trying to, you know, trying to to make a sale with other um other people who might be more fearful of divine retribution so i don't know not not too much to say about this story it's, it's kind of fun it's a nice little story and and worth looking at now there is something kind of insidious about the lightning rod salesman and this is going to be a motif that's used in later literature that we should be aware of. Of course, uh, most famously in Ray Bradbury, Something Wicked This Way Comes. You have a storm as a harbinger of dark times, and you have a lightning rod salesman as a, as a part of that story. And then it's something Stephen King used briefly in The Dead Zone as kind of an homage to, to Ray Bradbury's story, but it has its own kind of... Um, characteristics there and there it's worked into the plot where a house that doesn't a, a building that a bar it is that just chooses not to buy lightning rod earlier in the story is struck by lightning and burns down killing a great number of people and this motivates the character the main character of that novel to 
to more dramatic action in the future. So, um, so the lightning rod salesman. I don't know if he's the. This is the first literary example of a lightning rod salesman, but it's the earliest one that I have come across. And um, a lot of divine imagery here. A lot of focus on the. You know, he's almost presented as a dangerous villainous figure as well. So. You know, maybe he even commands the power of the storms, right? Because that, that's the ideal salesperson, right? The one who can exacerbate your fears, manipulate your fears, but also control what's causing your fears, right? Now, that would push this story into this, into becoming a story of the supernatural, which I'm not too uncomfortable with, uh, even if it fits a little bit outside of, of the other tales in the, in the collection. So anyways, that's the lightning rod man. So next I'm going to jump to... The Bell Tower. This was originally published in 1855. It's um, it's a little bit longer than than the Lightning Rod Man, but it's still one of the shorter tales in the collection. Um, and it's it's actually a straight up horror story, actually, um, and and pretty creepy, actually. It's a story about a an engineer in I think it's like Renaissance Italy or something. So in the south of Europe. Near a once frescoed capital, now with a dank mold kinkering in its bloom, central in a plain. So it seems to be like Italy. So he's building this bell tower, and, and that's really the plot of the story, is him building this bell tower. His name is Belladonna, I think. Banadona. Banadona is his name. And he built this bell tower, in the, <clears throat> and while building it, it's during the process of him actually making the bell. So they're like casting the bell, and... And at one point, in kind of a some kind of rage, he hits one of the workers. Here's what it says: Though their fear, the workers' fear, fatal harm to the bell was dreaded. Fearless as Shadrach, Banadona rushing through the glow, smote the chief culprit with his ponderous ladle. From the smitten part, a splinter was dashed into the seething mass, and at once was melted in. Next day, a portion of the work was heedfully uncovered. All seemed right. Upon the third morning, with equal satisfaction, it was bared still lower. At length, like some old Thabian king, the whole coin casting was disturbed. All was fair except one strange pot, spot. But as he suffered no one to attend him in these inspections, he concealed the blemish by some preparation which none knew better to devise. So what apparently happens here is when he killed this man, it somehow damaged the casting of the bell and there was this blemish and then he had to kind of repair that um, and he's actually a, you know acquitted of this murder of this of this worker so there, there's kind of an original sin in the planting of this this bell so there's a flaw in it from the beginning and now the way this bell tower works is when like the hour is struck there is these statues that come out you know one for each hour that strikes the hour on the on the bell. It's like a mechanical device as a technology, right? So, like uh, the lightning rod man, we kind of have the the overhang of a, of a technology coming in to interrupt nature. Here, it's it's kind of the the keeping of time and the banging of the bell that that does this. But it's it's a pretty elaborate device for for the Renaissance when this now when this story seems to be set. Um, now, while during one of these like. Once it's revealed that this is what the bell, the, the bell tower does, um, Banadonna actually is is hit by one of these statues, you know, during its one of its runs, and and killed. 
And then during the the creator's funeral, the the flaw that he tried to cover up is revealed. And then sometime after this, it's a year later after it's been working for a year, the whole thing collapses, showing it to be faultily made. And Melville's conclusion is as such, quote, So the blind slave obeyed its blinder lord, but in obedience slew him. So the creator was killed by the creature, so the bell was too heavy for the tower, so the bell's main weakness was where man's blood had flawed him. And so pride went before the fall. So um, a pretty conventional story of the inventor being destroyed by his own invention. Um, we've seen that many times, of course, in science fiction. And I think this can be like a, seen as a horror story in that it's, it is a fairly gruesome, some gruesome deaths take place. And, and we have a character who does a sin and, and he gets pay, pays for it at the end, right? We've seen this kind of stuff even in Tales from the Crypt episodes or things like that. Or, or those old um, EC comics often built on this trope. But it's also kind of an interesting science fiction novel. You know, I don't know if the Renaissance had this ability to make these kind of, of bell towers with this elaborate statue that could bing, ring the bell. But um, that's, of course, a science fiction trope of, of man being destroyed by their own technology. So I think it's worth reading this story just as a precursor to maybe those tales. And it, it, it is kind of interesting in its own. But um, interpretively, you know, I guess you have the moral just the moral argument of of a character of an inventor going beyond his means, you know, willing to create this thing at any cost and then paying for it at the end. I mean, that that's kind of rather rather cliche, but the you know, the whole idea of technology being dangerous to people and being rather uncontrollable, especially when you kind of move into automation, which of course clocks are um, we're going to see in Tartarus of Maids, which we'll look at later, kind of the his or broader critique of industrialism and how it affects human beings. And that's, of course, driven by clock time. Um, Melville's right in the time when we see the beginning of industrialization in America and the beginning of the incorporation of clock time and all the impacts that had on, on Americans and the American working class. So that's uh, the bell tower. And that leaves then the final story of the Piazza Tales, um, the Encantadas. And this is, it's not as long as Benito Sereno, but it's the, it's the second longest tale in this collection. And it's made up of, of 10 sketches all about the Galapagos Islands. And it's quite a beautiful piece. I, I really can't recommend this particular tale enough. It's, I mean, it traces, in fact, almost the entire history of these islands from natural um, complete naturalism untouched by humanity to being a center of colonialism or being a site of colonial domination okay so uh, I guess the best way to approach the Encantadas is just to go through the the, 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 the the ten different sketches and then give some general thoughts about it um, but really the most I can do here is really just recommend you read these because they are really really beautiful sketches and we see a, a society being conquered in ecologically um, and in other ways by by human beings and quite a it's not a place that was ever encountered by people before right you want to compare this maybe to Taipei or or Omu as places you know untouched by Europe and then kind of spoiled by that but this place had you know it's not even touched by by anyone before it's it's purely natural um, the first sketch 
which is called The Isle at Large, reveals basically the loneliness and the isolation uh, of the Galapagos Islands. It's very static being at the equator. There's no seasons. Um, and that's it. And he does, he does make one mention of people in this section, and that's the, the earliest visitors to the island, which were the buccaneers. People who didn't stay very long. Quote, such was the idea of the earliest visitors, the buccaneers, and the late as in 1750, the charts of that part of the Pacific accorded with the strange delusion. And this apparent fleetingness and unreality of the locality of the islands was most probably one reason for the Spaniards calling them the Encantada, or Enchanted Group. Um, sketch two is called Two Sides of the Tortoise, and it's just about the tortoises of the Galapagos Islands. Of course, there are some of the indigenous residents there. Sketches three is called Rock Redonda, which is about a giant tower on the island, which allows the viewer, if they were to climb up there, to view nature and to view the entire um, setting. Sketch four, we start to see human impact increase when our narrator uh, actually goes up Rock Redondo and, and sees, you know, and observes the whole, the islands from this place. And, it, and, it, and this then ties to the discovery of the island. So just as our character is observing it, he's thinking about the earliest discovery of the island by the Spanish and, and what they saw and what they observed when they first got there. Uh, so from this point on, we're really going to be talking about the human impact on the Encantadas. And sketch five is called the frigate. Uh, let me make sure I get it right. The frigate and ship flyaway. This is about the, the Essex, which was a U.S. military ship in the Pacific at the time. And it's sort of chasing a British um, ship during the War of 1812. Um, in fact, it's kind of fascinating here what Melville does. Uh, you know, that well, I'll just read it. Uh, this cruise of the Essex in the Pacific during the War of 1812 is perhaps the strangest and most stirring to be found in the history of the American Navy. She captured the furthest wandering vessels, visited the remotest seas and islands, long hovered in the charmed vicinity of the Enchanted Group, and finally valiantly gave up the ghost fighting two English frigates in the harbor of Valparaiso. Mention is made here of her here for the same reason that the buccaneers will likely receive record because like them by long cruising along the islands tortoise hunting upon the shores and generally exploring them and these for other reasons the essex is peculiarly associated with the encantadas so there's a again we're starting to see the beginning of imperial contact in in these islands sketch six is called barrington island and the buccaneers and this is just about how the buccaneers used the island. They would they would hunt the local animals for for food, but it's also a place where they would would meditate and be very, uh, I, I guess, unbuccaneer-ish while they were there. Um, uh, they don't touch the land though, and they don't really settle there. And it's a, it's a point Melville makes in this section. Quote, though they sometimes tarried here for months at a time and used the spot for a storing place for spare sails, spars, and casks, it is highly improbable that the buccaneers ever erected dwelling houses on the islands. They never were here except the ships remained. They would most likely have slept on board. I mention this because I can't avoid the thought that it is hard to impute the construction of these romantic seats to any other motive than one of pure peacefulness and kindly fellowship with nature. That the buccaneers perpetuated the greatest outrages is very true. That some of them were mere cutthroats is not to be denied, but we 
know that here and there among their hosts was damp, a dampier, a waffer, and a cowley, and likewise other men whose worth of reproach was their desperate fortunes, whose persecution, adversity, or secret and unavenged wrongs had driven from Christian society to seek the melancholy solitude or the guilty adventures of the sea. Um, and then the chapter ends, or the sketch ends, with him pondering actually these people as, as kind of philosophers and, and you know, observing nature. Um, sketch seventh is called Charles Island and Daw King. And so now we get to some really fascinating specific stories about the Encantadas. Now, this one is about a man who fought for Peru in their war of independence against Spain and was then granted one of these islands as essentially his fiefdom, his kingdom. And of course, with a kingdom, you need subjects. So he starts to recruit people to, to live under him in this kingdom. Um, he finds it kind of unmanageable and eventually he has to arm and guard himself with dogs and he has like a dog army that's going to protect him he's bringing in of course an invasive species dogs to to the island it's it's not directly addressed but it's mentioned and this is something melville talked about in typey uh the introduction or maybe it was an omu but it's one of those novels he talks about the introduction of invasive species to these islands um, but anyways, he, he collects these like deserters from whaling ships to be on the on his island, but eventually they revolt and he he has to flee back to Peru. And what happens to the people on the island? Well, they create essentially a type of democracy that Melville describes. We have actually a war of independence of sorts. Um, quote, doubtless for some time, the exiled monarch pensively ritualized in Peru, which afforded him safe asylum in their calamity, watched every arrival from the Incantatus to hear news of the failure of the Republic, the consequent penitence of the rebels and their own recalled royalty. Doubtless he deemed the Republic but a miserable experiment which would soon explode. But no, the insurgents had confederated themselves into a greater democracy, neither Gretchen, Roman, nor American. Nay, it was no democracy at all but a permanent riotocracy, which glorified in having no law but lawlessness. And he talks on about this for another paragraph. Um, but it's kind of a fascinating like model i guess of the american revolution right i can imagine the british sitting back thinking when is the Ameri when are the americans going to implode when is their stupid experiment in democracy going to fail and it never did right at least not until well we'll see uh the future of american democracy but uh for 200 years at least it didn't fail and that's sort of what's described here but uh we have a little model of a of an empire set up and then an over it, it being overthrown by by this population of deserters and buccaneers it, it's really awesome to think about all of these deserters runaways and other vagabonds who just wandered the pacific you know omu talks about them but we know that they were up around the pacific i i when i was researching this stuff i still hope to write uh write a book that gets into some of these these issues you know when American ships would go to some of these uninhabited islands, they sometimes have people on them, white people who have set up little kingdoms for themselves. It, it wasn't that uncommon for this to happen. So there is kind of a diaspora of, of Euro-Americans throughout the Pacific. Many of them were deserters or other types of people just leaving the authority of, of ships. So then we get sketch eight called Norfolk Island and the Cola Widow. So this is looking at another island. Now, a cola widow, a cola is a, 
is kind of a biracial Indian, right? It's someone who's like a mesito of some sort. <clears throat> and we get her story, how, and her name is Hunilla. And she had come to here from the mainland via a French ship and settled there. And, but her, her, her husband and the brother who was also with her drowned. And so she ends up alone on this island. And her only company are these dogs that, that dwell on the island with her. I don't know if they were brought by that the guy described in, in Section 8. But we've seen this kind of invasion of invasive, this invasive species already in, in the presence of dogs. And the story is just about her rescue and, and how she gets kind of brought back to civilization through, you know, through the arrival of other ships. It's the longest of the sketches, actually. Now, sketch 9 then gets a little bit darker. It's called Hood's Island and the Hermit Oberlis. And so Oberlis is a man who had been there like back in the, almost the 18th century. Almost. I'm, not, I'm not sure the exact date, but he had been there for a really long time. And he's someone who just didn't want to be with people anymore, so he deserts. And he just kind of sets up a little farm for himself on one of these islands. And he would sell his goods to the ships that would come by. And that's how he made his living, such as it was. Um, but he also develops this desire to be an emperor, kind of like the guy we, we meet in, in Section 7. And so he starts to actually get involved in kind of slavery and, and, and capturing people and, you know, tricking people to get them to come with him and basically making these people his slaves. And, you know, by the end, he seems to have a little, like, slave society for himself set up. Um, eventually, though, he gets captured and put in jail. And, um, and that's the end of his, his tale. But um, really interesting how we see the introduction of, of actually slavery to these islands through, through some of these castaways. And then we have sketch 10 called Runaways, Castaways, Solitaires, Gravestones, etc. And this is a relatively short one, but it, it's just kind of a conclusion to where we've been already with these previous three, four sketches, seeing that the Incantadas, the Galapagos Islands, have become a destination for numerous uh, kind of wanderers and vagabonds and deserters who, who find a place for themselves in here. And, and some of them even die there or some of them have graves left behind. Um, but they leave a mark on, on these islands, so they don't, they're no longer untouched by, by human hands. So there's a lot we can do with the Encantadas as a, as a tale. Certainly we have a story of environmental history, of an untouched uh, wilderness that gets incorporated into global capitalism through these merchant sailors who come by and these whalers. And over time, they get more and more affected by what they do. They bring in species. They bring in crops to grow, like that last guy, Oberlis. Uh, they bring in animals, which, of course, are going to have a devastating effect on the local wildlife. And you're going to have succeeding, you know, waves of, of empire, right? And it's not just Darwin. We know about Darwin's voyages to the Galapagos and all that. But that's just one small segment of a much broader ecological history being described here. Now, I don't know how much of this is, is drawn from reality. But it seems to be true to life from what I know of, of this history. That's one way. And I think more broadly, if you don't want to look at it from ecologically, you can look at it as the development of empire in the Pacific from kind of the untouched land to 
to colonial domination. And that's exactly the story he was telling in Taipei and in Omu. So we're in familiar territory, at least. And it's not that much, it's not that long ago from the time this was published that he wrote Taipei and Omu. It's, it's only eight, seven, eight years previously that he wrote them. So these themes are certainly still on his mind. And I think a third thing we can say about the Encantadas is I'm reminded of Marty a little bit, especially in the kind of the criticism of, of American democracy, right? Certainly that one sketch about the uprising against the overlord and the formation of a riotocracy, it, it reminds me of some of the, the vignettes we saw in Marty in which you had kind of a touring of the Pacific and various people, like various societies become then ways for Melville to critique American democracy. So, I don't know, really this is a story of empire and empire building in, a, in, a, in the Pacific. Is that's, that's how I'm going to read it, and I, I think that's how we can, that's one way at least we can look at it. But I think there's also the ecological narrative and the, the critique of, of American democracy at play here. But I think at the heart of it, it's, it's, a, it's an untouched land becoming dragged into the politics and, and narrative of empire. Um, so... That does it. That does it for um, the Piazza Tales. I, I don't have much more to say about them. They're certainly a lot of fun and, and, and well worth reading. So where are we going to go from here? Well, the next thing in the Library of America volume is The Confidence Man, Melville's last published novel, at least published during his lifetime. But I'm going to skip that for now and go to his uncollected tales. Uh, so we got, and prose, we got six articles and reviews to look at. We'll, we'll do that just uh, very briefly in the next episode. And then I'll look at a couple of the stories. I think we have like 11 more stories. These are, yeah, so I think he wrote altogether something like 16 tales for Putnam's and um, and some other, and other magazines in that period of time after the failure of Pierre. And um, some of these are quite short, some are fairly lengthy. So it's gonna be a mixture of, of, of things like the Piazza Tales. But these are things that didn't get collected in kind of a short story collection while I was alive. They, they, would, you know, they just would remain in magazine form. So there's a bunch of stories we're gonna look at. So I'm gonna start out looking at his articles and reviews and then jump into a few of his tales and then do the rest of the tales in the following episode. So we'll do two episodes to finish up his uncollected prose and then we'll go back and and take a look at the confidence man and then finally billy budd and then that will allow us to wrap up this series on on melville's writing so anyways let me know what you think of the encantadas or the bell tower or the lightning rod man if you've read those stories i would love to hear what you think about them um but that's all for now uh, leave your comments below or send me an email at 100 pagescast at gmail.com i would love very much to hear from you um that's it. See you next time. Thanks, as always, for listening. <laughs>